Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Hey, thank you guys for coming on. Um, you know, we, we've got a couple topics we get, we, we should talk about. Uh, I don't know if you, you think we'll stay, stay with video the whole time, Zach, depending on how the signal and the sound comes. We may have to drop video at some point if the, if the sound gets compromised. But uh, So you guys are, you know, for people who don't know you guys, I mean, you guys are both uh, – dedicated carnivores you've been doing it for quite a while i can't remember the day i know safe you're probably over two years now michael i don't know how long you've been doing it for um and then obviously there's the bitcoin you know the bitcoin thing which many of the people listening to this are going to not know much about so we're going to we're going to get into both of those topics um you know uh hopefully as much as we're able to what do you guys want to talk about first bitcoin or carnivory I mean, they're really one in the same. Before we get <laughs> uh, well, I, I, also, I mean, I think both of us have been doing it about two and a half years. We practically started around the same week. Uh, okay. we, we, had been, we had both been very uh, hardcore keto advocates. And then uh, one day we were just messing each other. It was like, hey, safe. Do we really need to eat vegetables? And safe was like, hey, Michael, do, do we really need to eat vegetables? And then we stopped because we didn't. <laughs> And then what happened? You guys, you immediately dropped dead, right? I mean, you got sick, you got malnourished right away without those without those vital phytonutrients that we always hear about. Is that what uh, happened? I've been dealing with uh, scurvy and kidney problems for the past two and a half years. <laughs> but, you know, I take about three pounds of supplements every day, so that's what allows me. Are those supplements in the form of uh, red fatty things called steaks? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a lot of, you know, it's a lot of, you know, we got to do a lot of, uh, you know, just myth busting, you know, and, and dispel. We, we just had Professor Stuart Phillips on talking about protein and all the myths that could surround on eating protein. And, you know, it does take an order of magnitude of effort to dis, to dispel all the BS that's out there. And so you got to, you know, whatever BS is put out there, you got to spend 10 times as much energy to kind of dispute that. And so, but you guys have been doing it for two and a half years. So I guess you guys knew each other prior to that via via i guess the bitcoin thing is that correct yes yeah yeah right so what what drove you i mean what were the differences that you guys when you switched over from from a ketogenic diet and and i don't know what you guys were on before that but what drove you guys i mean what were the changes you guys noticed good and good and bad you know and, and obviously you're still doing it so there must be more good than bad i would assume yeah i mean in my case i think i had the i the most noticeable thing was that I lost my belly. I had a little bit of a small belly left, even at uh, low carb. And I think that uh, final pulling the plug on uh, getting rid of vegetables, I wasn't eating, you know, I wasn't eating a lot of vegetables, but it was uh, just pulling that plug on that last little bit, I think made a bit of a big difference. And in terms of the metabolism, the ease of digestion, that also changed. It's just uh, eating became simpler and easier and uh, 
cooking time was much less. Food was much more delicious when you replace broccoli with an extra steak. It's just a no-brainer. So all around, it was just, um, I mean, there was, there was no negative trade-off involved. It was just better all along. And so I just uh, stuck with it because it, it felt much better. And I think also focus. I, I mean, the, the focus and the mentality aspect of it also um, improved a lot. The calmness, the ability to focus and concentrate, the ability to not, you know, um, if you're under pressure, if you're facing something complicated, the ability to just stay focused and uh, be able to do what you want to do, I think, is, uh, is is pretty noticeable. Were you, when you were on a ketogenic diet, were you, I mean, meticulous with your macros? Did you find that by switching to a carnivorous diet that your protein intake went up uh, a bit? I was never much into counting and macros and all of that stuff. So I started down this path of reducing carbohydrates about 10 years ago when somebody mentioned it to me and I thought, you know, let's just try. At that time, I was maybe 30 pounds heavier than what I am right now. I was, you know, I I was 27, but I felt like I was 50. Um, You know, I, I wasn't feeling great all the time. And I was overweight. And so what I started doing was, um, you know, I just removed, first of all, soft drinks like Coca-Cola and Pepsi. I got rid of these. I got rid of bread or I reduced bread drastically initially. And that was a huge difference. So then I was just on this, um, you know, I I never really followed a strict diet. I never measured. I never followed a meal plan. I never uh, followed any of that stuff. I was just doing my best to try and cut down on the carbohydrates. And then over time, I started reading more, experimenting more, uh, listening to different ideas. You do take a lot of detours and you do follow some uh, stupid ideas like, say, taking MCT oil in heavy doses, um, which I, I look back on right now and I think is just um, probably was a silly thing to do. Uh, it tasted like crap and, you know, uh, you can get much better fat from a ribeye, so I don't see the reason for it. But, you know, over time, I experimented with a lot of different things and really... Um, I, I was never really strict about any of it, but I was just always getting improvements from reducing carbs until I tried going uh, zero carb. And then it was really liberating because now I don't even have to think about macros or should I be eating this or should I be eating that. And I, I, this is for me the main advantage of it is that I just don't think about food at all. It's one of, the, one of the, 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 the comments that's often made about people on a carnivorous diet, they will say, well, it's because you got rid of the sugar and the processed food. And, you know, that was the only reason that you're doing better. But clearly, you know, there is a step in between there when you've already done that and all that's left are, you know, some vegetables and maybe some low sugar fruits and some of the keto things. But by getting rid of those things in addition, you know, yeah. you're saying that you actually noted an improvement, even though you, you excluded those things, and even though you'd already gotten rid of all the processed sugary stuff out of your diet. Yeah, pretty much. I'd, uh, I wasn't eating junk. I wasn't eating... I was eating, you know, the occasional, I was eating vegetables mainly, um, pickles and uh, small amounts of fruits. Uh, that was that was all that I was eating as I was keto and low carb. And that's what I got rid of, you know, the supposedly innocuous uh, vegetables. But I think it made a big deal, big difference. Now, now that's, safe, that's, that's, that's oh, go ahead, of, go ahead, Jack. Sorry, that's the interesting thing to me is I think like uh, the carnivore approach has gained a quite a bit of momentum in the last year or so, you know, partly thanks to Dr. Baker and, uh, um, but so you're seeing people now kind of going from, I guess, a standard American diet to straight carnivore. And then I think that, you know, when people make that question of like, well, yeah, you just, you got rid of a whole bunch of junk and replaced it with, with, 
you know, beef or meat. Uh, so you saw benefits not necessarily from the beef or the meat, uh, but more so from just the elimination of the poor things. But I think when we get guys like you and some of our other guests like Amber O'Hearn and Michaela Peterson, uh, some of those original carnivores, you know, they didn't just jump in from a standard American diet. They, they're more like what you guys yeah. are. They, they started out probably at one point at a standard American diet and then went keto uh, or gluten-free or something like that. They, they, they took all those steps along the way. They didn't go, you know, jump all the way to carnivore right away. And I think that's what's interesting, kind of getting that story from, from you know, guys like you and other folks who've been doing it for, for quite a while. Like Charles Washington is another good example. We had him on the show as well. And um, to kind of more or less look at that from a different angle and not just say, yeah, we're eliminating bad things because when when you're doing a healthy ketogenic approach, you know, there's a lot of vegetables in that for most people because uh, like what we've talked with uh, some of our previous guests too, a lot of times the, the move on the ketogenic diet is eliminate the starchy vegetable but replace it with a fibrous non-starchy vegetable. Um, and I think sometimes that can cause some problems because you're eating a lot of just undigestible matter. You're, you're putting, as Tucker Goodrich would say, essentially cardboard <laughs> into your yeah, system and absolutely. you're causing your body to have to process that. So yeah. um, it's interesting to hear. Well, once, you, once, you hear it, once you hear vegetables described as cardboard, you can just never <laughs> unsee that. You can never unhear it. And you're always eating and you're just thinking, what am I doing to myself? Why do I, why do I put something indigestible in the digestive system it just does not make sense yeah yeah and you know one thing i noticed too when i've i when i started ketogenic you know i did that exact thing i was eating tons of vegetables i looked at them as this great gateway for fat and then when i kind of brought that back into check what i one thing i noticed was you wouldn't get these kind of big swings and just like water weight i guess because i'm assuming like you know there's going to be some binding of uh fiber with water, which is going to cause these like more, like these bigger, like weight fluctuations. When you kind of cut that out, all of a sudden, like you kind of maintain that same balance or your body's able to balance some of that a little, a little better. And, and, and then you just feel better, I think, because you're not constantly going through these big swings and water retention and things like that. So did, have you guys noticed anything like that too, when you kind of cut down on some of the fiber or some of the vegetables? I'm trying to remember it's been so long. Um, <laughs> I mean, for me, I, for me, my story, I had been interested in paleo diets for many, many years prior. Uh, one of the things that carnivory did for me was uh, give me a way to actually stick with healthy eating. Uh, because despite understanding paleo and then eventually like the, the ketogenic stuff, I was still eating a lot of junk food because, it would, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have a slip day and start eating fast food and then it would just continue and I would just be a fast food junkie again. And um, I didn't. I wasn't able to finally kick my uh, soda habit until until I went carnivore, uh, which is probably one of the you know best things I've ever done in my life um, was getting rid of that. Um, so I actually uh, I almost I was somewhat coming from the standard American diet. I just knew about the other stuff as well. Hey, safe. Let me. Uh... I mean, you're a bit of a world traveler now with your book and stuff like that, and we'll get into that stuff. But, I mean, you're based out of Lebanon. Do you find that uh, living in Lebanon is either positive or negative with regard to carnivory? You know, what's the attitude in that country towards this type of diet? Is vegetarianism, veganism widely popular in Lebanon? What's a, what's what's a, what's a, the, the, the milieu no, no. like there? 
At the risk of making all of your uh, listeners want to move to Lebanon, I'll just say Lebanon might be the best place for uh, carnivores because, well, we don't have a lot of vegans and vegetarians, but, you know, it doesn't really matter. For me, what uh, matters is that, um, even if we did, I think what really matters is Lebanon has an amazing uh, um, culture of uh, butchers who know how to process meat, in particular, raw meat and organ meat. Uh, So if um, if you just Google Lebanese raw meat or Lebanese organ meat, you'll see some amazingly looking dishes. Um, and it's uh, it's amazing because there, you know, you have butchers everywhere and they'll deliver. So I have no problem, you know, waking up in the morning and calling the butcher and having, uh, you know, uh, brains, liver um, or ground raw meat delivered, you know, all fresh processed on uh, all, you know, prepared on order, delivered straight to your home. It's uh, it's really exceptionally good. So, for instance, uh, you may have heard of some dishes like kibbe or habra or sauda These are all raw, and they're great. And I I used to love that stuff a lot even before I was carnivore. I used to always, I mean, raw liver has always been my favorite uh, dish. And, um, you know, when you're in Lebanon, you can get that. It's it's really clean. It's really fresh. It's really good. It's It's a great place to be a carnivore. I love it. That brings up an interesting topic because there's a lot of uh, sort of, you know, among the carnivore community, there's a lot of uh, sort of back and forth about is raw meat better, is, you know, including a bunch of organs better. What are your guys' opinion, thoughts, experience on that? You know, I personally don't include a lot of that, and I, and I, and I personally feel and perform very good. Uh, you know, I'll have some organ meat occasionally at a restaurant if it's available. You know, I'm going to go to a Brazilian all-you-can-eat place in a couple of days and I'm sure they'll have some kind of like chicken hearts or something like that. I'll probably have a few of those, but I don't make it a regular part of my diet, but uh, just wondering what your, what your guys thoughts are on that. Michael, your experience with that, because it's a bit of a controversial topic. Some people say, yes, it's mandatory to include in the diet. Other people say, no, we do fine without it. Um, yeah. I mean, this is, this is one of the, the hotly debated uh, topics. Even when you get down to eating only one thing, there's still going to be debate among people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, my, I, I have eaten a bit of raw meat before, and uh, it was a very positive experience, um, uh, digestive-wise. Um, but I, for a lot of these things, I, I, I don't really know the the different causal mechanisms of why some people would do some better with different things. Like, um, you know, the Andersons eat very much not raw meat. They they cook theirs to you know, medium, medium, medium well. And I think they've even experimented with raw meat and they just do better than with, uh, with that. A lot of Eskimos, uh, or Inuit, uh, rather, uh, ate a lot of raw meat. And then there's other references from Stephenson where they're cooking their meat a lot. Um, and the same thing with organs is there's some, you know, times you'll hear that a group was eating a lot of organ meats and some, oh, they were throwing it to the dogs. Um, so uh, you know, I've kind of I've kind of experimented. I haven't noticed huge differences yet. You know, uh, but it's the sort of thing I'm I'm open minded to it. And uh, there's there's some contingents that are very um, aggressive about the idea that you should be eating uh, raw and a lot of organ meats. And uh, you know, they even you know like to criticize you um, for for basically saying you know just. Just eat a damn steak, uh, which I also support. I'm willing to even believe that maybe there is something 
uh, to that. But at the same time, uh, I can't deny the results that people are having by just eating, you know, muscle meats. So uh, maybe hypothetically, if we if we had scientists who are do- doing their jobs, maybe we could explore these things. But until now, um, they're they're busy finding the magic next <laughs> antioxidant uh, berry out there to sell it to you for seventeen dollars yeah. a pound. The, yes. These are the real nutritional questions, and no one no one's addressing them. Um, so hypothetically, yeah. maybe there's something to eating a lot of raw meat, a lot of organ meats. Uh, but like I said, like uh, all of us have seen results just by eating yeah. muscle meat, and so many people have. So at the very least, we can't deny the results we're seeing there. Maybe there's something more, but. Um, I'll, oh, sorry. Yeah. Jeff, to go ahead. My, my my only experience is I used to like organ meat for a long time. I've always loved organ meat, and so uh, I just honestly don't think much about it. I I I eat organ meat not because I have to. I eat it because I enjoy it, and uh, I mean. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's necessary because people like you show me that, you know, you're obviously not suffering from any deficiencies. I wonder, however, maybe if you're coming off some terrible um, standard American diet, perhaps if you were able to eat organ meat, you might be able to adjust mm-hmm. quicker. You might be able to recover from the damage quicker. That might a lot be the more case. deficiencies going on. Yeah, if you have a lot of deficiencies, possibly organ meat. I, I keep reading stuff about how, how rich they are in, uh, in nutrients. So I think there might be something for that. And I'd also think, you know, um, I don't think it's very uh, healthy or natural for people to be repulsed by organ meat. I think if you find organ meat repulsive, then, you know, maybe you've just had too much uh, cereal and uh, Coca-Cola that, you know, you're not used to the taste of meat. I I, I see nothing wrong with it. I love the taste of liver. Perhaps, you know, people who are maybe afraid of uh, organ meat, perhaps a good uh, gateway drug to organs might be the tongue. The tongue is slightly similar to muscle meat. It is a bit of a muscle, and it's it's not very easy to cook. But I think it's uh, it's delicious, and it's um, cooking with it is very good. Another thing that I really like and I highly recommend is bone broth. I think it's enormously beneficial. And I, bone I do marrow as well. Yeah, and bone marrow as well. These things, I mean, I I, I can I can feel getting stronger just by with every sip when I when I drink it, but. As I was saying, you know, earlier, it's just I don't think much about food anymore, and this is for me the the, the most uh, liberating and beautiful thing about yeah. this diet, which is, you know, if I feel like having some liver, I'll have it. If I don't, I'll have a steak. If I feel like cooking my steak, I'll cook it. If not, when I'm eating lamb, I generally prefer it more well done. When I'm eating beef, I prefer it more rare. Um, when I'm in the when I'm in the states or Canada, I'll. Um, I can go weeks or months without having organ meat and not even uh, notice it. Um, so I just, I mean, in in the long run, I think, you know, all of these roads, all of these paths lead to the same sort of destination, which is if you've gone a year, I think, with, uh, with a lot of meat and zero carb or very close to zero carb, you're going to be all right, whatever you do. That's yeah. what I think. I would also say, like, you know, barring... Barring you know a specific medical case where uh, perhaps organ meats uh, are really beneficial, I know uh, the Paleo Medicina group in Hungary they strongly suggest eating uh, quite a bit of organ meat, so about a about a pound of liver a week, and um, also brains if you can have access to it. It's very easy to access to that in the United States, and at this point, I just want to try it just because they don't want me to eat it. Apparently, it's really good. It's really really good. <laughs> but. Um, I think there's this issue with, you know, meat uh, has been so vilified um, for so long that people almost do anything they can to rationalize why they shouldn't. 
So for instance, in the paleo communities, you get stuff about, you know, oh, you need grass-fed meat. So unless you are getting like the finest cattle from New Zealand where they have an ancient shaman like, you know, <laughs> blessing it all day as it eats the grass on the perfect pasture, unless you have that, you shouldn't eat the meat. You should focus on like good paleo vegetables that your ancestors didn't even have access to. Um, likewise, uh, with organ meats, it does have a bit of a control element to it where it's, uh, people just don't, people underestimate how nutritious meat itself is, just muscle meat is. Um, and so they think, uh, they need to control you. Oh, you need to eat the whole animal to, to get everything. And yeah. it's just, it's, it's an open question to me. I can see arguments from both sides and I, I only have uh, limited ex limited experience with the organ side, so I, I really don't know. But um, if if you're using it, if you're using organs or for instance, or like I said, like grass fed or something like that as an excuse as to why you shouldn't eat more meat, I totally disagree with that. Yeah. Once you've gotten into it, or if you have a specific illness that can be helped by uh, supplementing with liver or something else, barring that, like. Uh, until you've like fully adapted, that's when you can start, you know, experimenting with things. But until then, you know, uh, you know, don't worry about your salt intake. Don't worry about your organ meat intake. Don't get, worry about grass fed. Once you get once you get settled in, maybe you'll start uh, exploring different sources of meat. Maybe you'll start exploring uh, different parts of the animal. Uh, maybe you'll start exploring things like removing salt um, or, or maybe even more salt. Um, but the lesson, you know. Just eat a damn steak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you know, it's interesting you, you referenced, uh, you know, paleo medicina. We're going to have Kasaba Toth, uh, the, the, one of the principal researchers, uh, clinicians there on the show coming up in a couple of weeks. So I'm excited doing to have him on. Well, well, yeah, that's, that's, I'm, I'm excited to talk about him. But, you know, we had Mickey Bendor, anthropologist, on a couple of weeks. I don't know if you guys caught that show, but we got into, you know, human evolutionary uh, nutritional, uh, nutritional uh, strategies. And, you know, one of the things that was shown is, you know, they, you know, they, they largely, you know, ate a lot of elephants, basically, and because they were the fattiest animals, they were going after the fat. And some of the behaviors that, you know, went around that, like, you know, as, as you know, the fat sources kind of went away, as we kind of killed off that megafauna, then we started to seek out more of the fattier parts. We started to crack the bones so we get the marrow so we can continue to get that energy supply. And so I think a lot of times some of the cultural stuff around eating organ meats and stuff like that is, you know, cultures that had access to a limited amount of animals or, you know, they, they, they relied on that. They would probably eat as much animal as possible rather than go to the grains, rather than go to some of the uh, some of the other uh, plant-based sources of nutrition, so they would Get try to maximize. They would maximize the animal nutrition, and now we're in a situation here in the United States, in particular, where hey man, I can go to the grocery store and buy ten ribeye steaks. I don't have a. I'm not in a situation uh, that that's saying I've got to eat every single you know, you know, eyeball and and, and brain and stuff like that. And so I, I don't know. Again, I think it's an open-ended question, but I think some of that has to do with situation, has to do with culture, and I think it has to do with you know what you're forced to do. I do think organs are obviously they're very highly nutritious. Um, you know, I don't think that there's a downside to including them for most people. I mean, there's some talk about you know too much vitamin A toxicity if you if you just you know gorge continuously the liver, liver, but that's that's pretty that's pretty you know minimally a, real, a realistic scenario. So I think that's an open-ended question. Let's yeah. Um, do you want to let's shift over to Bitcoin, guys? Because this is you know this is a topic that you know I wish I knew more about. I, 
teach us about Bitcoin as if we're third graders, because, you know, <laughs> you know, that, I mean, just go through the basics, walk it through it. I mean, there's a lot of criticism being levied at, levied at it. It's it's I mean, just what is Bitcoin? Why do we need to know about it? Why is it important? I mean, you guys are some of the world's experts. Safe has got a book out there. Uh, it's, it's called Bitcoin Standard. If I'm not is that, the, is that the name of the book. Yeah, the Bitcoin it's Standard. I, uh, you know, I, I hope you plug your book. There it is, <laughs> Bitcoin Standard. I know you're proud of doing that work. I know I, I know. I saw you watch, you, you put all that work through. Your fingers were bleeding on the keyboard, typing all that stuff up there. You were powered by meat. Your, your brain was working at, at maximum efficiency to get that out there. I've seen a lot of good a good reviews on that. So I just don't understand. I just don't have the, the financial background like you guys do. So, so talk to us about Bitcoin. What's the story? Hey, folks. Human Performance Outlier Podcast is very happy to announce that we have brought on ButcherBox as one of our sponsors. Uh, with ButcherBox, you can get some high-quality meat and cut out the middleman so that you save quite a bit on what would normally be the charge you'd get at the grocery store. Uh, with that, on your first order, if you use promo code HPO, you'll get 20% off plus free bacon. Sean, why don't you tell them about your experience with ButcherBox? Yeah, I mean, I've used ButcherBox, you know, for quite a while now. I've, I've gone through several of their, their uh, different boxes. And, you know, for me, and, and by the way, that's a pretty good deal there uh, relative to some of the other stuff I've seen out there. But it has been, uh, you know, very consistently good, a good product. You know, it's always been, you know, the, the quality of the meat's been very good. Uh, for you guys that are concerned about it, they are a 100% antibiotic, hormone-free product that is a grass-finished product. The meat comes out of Australia. Uh, and it has a very, uh, I find, you know, because and I'll be honest, I, I, I prefer grain-fed beef in general, but I find that this particular uh, grass-finished product uh, tastes pretty solid. I mean, it's pretty good. You know, a lot of the, the grass-finished uh, meat can taste a little bit uh, almost gamey, uh, and I don't find that to be the case uh, with, with the ButcherBox product, and probably because of the like the time the animals spend on grass, and they get a little bit more marbling in there, and I think that helps. And so I've had a, a very good experience with them, and I highly recommend them. All right, folks, head over to ButcherBox.com and hit promo code HPO. Thank you, and back to the show. Bitcoin is monetary ribeye. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, I guess... Um, I'll just uh, the, the way that I see Bitcoin is just the software that is distributed over thousands of computers all over the world, maybe many more than, than thousands. Um, and it allows people to, it, it, the software that allows us to perform the functions of money and the payment network. That's at a very simple level, that's what it does. So effectively, in my opinion, the argument that I make in the book is that it can replace the functions of a central bank. So instead of having uh, the central banks of the world, which are government monopolies, which um, which are, have a monopoly on the issuance of money and the monopoly on the transferring of value across the world, we're replacing that with a bunch of software that does that job. So obviously we don't have time to get into how it does that job and people can read um, a lot of things online that explain it. But essentially, you know, if it's in the same way that you know uh, it used to be that you needed an operator to make a phone call you know you had to call the operator and they would pick a wire and plug it in there had to be human uh, manual uh, operators for phones and then we figured out how to make phones so that they would be automated so that you just click the number and then it makes the call you can think of this as like that but i emphasize in my book that it's not really a replacement for your credit card or for your paypal or for your consumer payments it's really a replacement for the a central bank layer of payment settlement 
and and the key thing is like this this base layer is not controlled by any one individual. So when yeah. you're using uh, the United States dollar, that's a currency that is under the full control of the Federal Reserve. They get to decide what is the supply of that currency. Um, but Bitcoin, the rules are set um, by the entire community, and it's effectively impossible to change. And thus, no no individual can decide to just create more units out of thin air to enrich themselves at the um, at the expense of others. Um, and so, uh, it, it it allows for more financial sovereignty and uh, you know not not being not having your currency devalued by. A, an organization that wants to enrich themselves. Yeah, and I think the connection with, uh, with, with the carnivorous dieting and low carb in general, I think is just that um, in the same way that, you know, the US government and most governments in the world have been telling people what to eat, and as you know, it's not been working out. In economics, there's a very similar problem, which is that, you know, economists are the ones who handle the money. Instead of money being a free market institution, which is, which is what we had under the gold standard, you know, nobody no king or president or parliament decreed that gold should be money. It emerged as money because of its properties that made it the best form of money back in the 19th century, which I discussed in depth in my book. You have that model of people freely choosing their money and, co and you know, transacting with others who also accept that money and whose value is determined on the market because people accept it versus the 20th century model of government telling you, no, you need to use this piece of paper and we can make as much of that piece of paper as we think is best we decide uh, how much the interest rate is. We, you know, we have a, a committee of experts that basically decides those things. So that sounds very familiar, obviously, if you look at how nutrition works. You know, for millions of years, somehow the human race managed to survive without having, yeah, without the USDA telling us what to eat. But you know, somehow we get to the 20th century, and oh my God, you know, what are we going to eat if the USDA doesn't explain to us how many portions of this and that we need to eat? So. If you're going to question one, you're highly likely to be um, able to uh, look into the other. And so that's why, you know, a lot of people who get into Bitcoin are very easy to persuade about this. You just tell them, well, you know, um, it turns out just like you're thinking, just like with Bitcoin, you know, maybe what they told you about diet is wrong. Why don't you try a couple of weeks of eating steaks? Check it out. See what happens. You find that the possibility of a Bitcoiner trying that out is far higher. Also, the other way around, like a carnivore who's already come to the conclusion that, yeah, the USDA has lied to me. Well, maybe other uh, uh, government agencies aren't um, telling me the truth. So maybe this Bitcoin thing, there is something to it. So you find this open mindedness, this ability to question authority, this ability to not just be, uh, you know, not just go by what authority tells you, I think is 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 the main thing that is in common between the two yeah and with both of them we, when people try it they actually see results you know with uh the bitcoin network the bitcoin network has an uptime of 99.9999 whatever percent um since the network started almost 10 years ago um and likewise people see uh you know results with uh, carnivore diets sometimes within days um if even that long like some people for some symptoms it'll be the next day they'll start feeling better We're, we're, we're providing uh, new ideas that people can actually go out and try and see for themselves. They can verify that for themselves and get actual results. Um, we're, not just, we're not just playing around in a theoretical playground. We are trying to enact things in the real world and get a better world, not just in our minds, but like actually around us. 
Yeah, and I think the, uh, if you don't mind me, uh, I think the other point that is really interesting, and I I had almost a whole section of my book written about this, but it it required a lot more research um, for it to really be uh, strong, and I end, ended up removing it, but maybe I'll write it as an article or maybe even a book at some point. But I think there's a very strong link between the degeneration of nutrition over the last 40, 50 years in the U.S. and the degeneration of the currency. And, you know, the link is, is, is pretty straightforward. There's like a smoking gun that you can see, which is that in the 1970s, after many uh, decades of, you know, slow inflation, inflation began to pick up really properly after 1971, which was when the link between the dollar and gold, the final link between the dollar and gold was removed. So after that, the prices of everything started going up. But obviously, no government in history has ever admit that the reason the prices are rising is because of uh, the fact that they're printing money. It's always everything else in the world except for them printing money to pay bills. So, of course, in the 70s, it was the U.S., you know, the the local welfare policies plus the uh, global warfare policies the U.S. was carrying out, the enormous amount of spending that U.S. politicians were doing. That's what was driving inflation. That's what was driving the prices up. So the government's response to that was to... Um, you know, uh, prevent to blame it on speculators and international financiers, which is what I always do, and to try and find a way to keep the prices low. And so in order to do that, they came up with this thing called the CPI, which is a ridiculous um, measure of prices. It's completely invalid mathematically um, because it measures the average value of the things that an individual buys. But of course, that's not going to be an accurate measure of the uh, inflation because what you buy depends on the prices of things. In other words, um, you know what they, what they did effectively was that they tried to make it so that the value of the food doesn't uh, rise. But you know, if you, if if you see if you look at it, here, here's the best way of explaining it. So in 1970, if you wanted to buy a ribeye, it would have cost you probably two dollars. So then. Flash forward, uh, fast forward to uh, 1990, a ribeye costs maybe $20 to, or $10, let's say. So now, you know, if you have the same income between 1970 and 1990, you can't afford the ribeye anymore. So you're buying a burger for $3. So it looks like in 20 years, the price has gone up about 50% in 20 years, right? Which, you know, is not that bad. 50% over 20 years is maybe 1% or 2% per year. That's doable. For most people, that is acceptable. If you tell everybody, you know, prices are going up by 1% or 2%, but that's the price you have to pay for living in a modern society or whatever, um, and that's the sort of the thing that they say, most people are willing to accept it. But you see, you're not having a, bur- you're not having a ribeye for a 50% increase. You're having a burger, which is less expensive. And now you move fast forward to 2010, people aren't, you know, they're now buying their lunch for $4 or $5, but it's not even a burger. It's a soy burger. So like on the CPI index, it looks like, you know, your lunch was $2 in 1970, $3 in 1990, $4 in 2010. I'm, I'm just making these numbers up, obviously. But, you know, the point is it looks like the lunch is going up. The price of the lunch is going up at 2-3% per year. But in fact, what has happened is that your lunch, you've replaced your ribeye with a soy burger. And so if you think that, you know, it's all proteins and calories and it doesn't really matter, then it's fine. You know, inflation is low. But if you want to really understand, you know, once you start understanding nutrition, once you start understanding the soy burger is very different from a ribeye, you can see that, yeah, the price of the ribeye today is maybe 20 bucks, 
it's up tenfold from what it was in 1970 or something like that. So the inflation is actually much higher. And so what has happened is that, you know, the price of food has gone up, but the quality of the nutrition that people eat has gone down. And so the way that we've hidden the inflation is just by feeding people more and more nutrition-free junk that allows them to think that, oh, you know, we're eating, you know, and the prices aren't up. But really, you know, you're just cheating yourself. You're cheating your body out of it. And the best, the best, you know, this is like the general picture of it. But if you want to see the sort of smoking gun that I mentioned earlier, I mean, uh, I think there's a story of a guy called Earl Butts, who was the Secretary of Agriculture under uh, Nixon. So what Nixon did, and what Nixon did was, you know, look, prices are rising for food, and we need to find a solution for this. And so Earl Butts, he was called King Corn, because he went out and told all the U.S. farmers, you know, his his motto was go big or go home. We have no time for small farmers. We have no time for small land holdings producing, you know, uh, nutritious food. We need industrial agriculture. And so it was effectively using the power of industrialization, using the power of hydrocarbon fuels and modern machinery and equipment to try and bring the price of food down. And that succeeded. You know, you can make a lot more corn if you give government subsidies to uh, corn producers they can make more corn they can produce it in much larger quantities but the of course the effect of it as you see is that you know the corn is nutrient free effectively and it's just full of calories so effectively it's an industrial process where you're just filling calories well it's worse than nutrient free yeah it's, it's actually it's full of anti-nutrients <laughs> exactly so you're getting all the anti-nutrients you're not getting any of the nutrients that are in that food and you're filling it with calories and, you know, this, in my opinion, is the real driver of the obesity. It's the fact that, you know, if you, as I'm sure you know, you know, once you eat a steak, that's it. You have a steak and then you can go on with the rest of your day and you don't need to worry about food anymore. But if you have cereal in the morning, you've just had a bunch of calories, a sugar spike, and then you crash. And then all day long, you need to keep nibbling on junk in order to keep getting that sugar high again. So I think you can't really understand the transformation and the move towards this kind of nutrient-free junk grazing day long that that most people in America do, which is at the root of the cause of this crisis, you can't really understand that separately from the destruction of the value of the currency and the fact that, you know, people's real incomes are not keeping up with the inflation that is um, destroying the value of the food. If you think of it in terms of numbers and government statistics like the CPI, it doesn't look bad. But if you wanted to measure it in terms of the actual nutrients that people are getting, I think, yeah, it does look very bad. And so if you wanted to measure the price of um, you know, how many nutrients you would have had in 1950 versus today. And this is something that I'd like to work on in, in more detail. I think that's where the inflation begins to show up. So, besides, hey, Safe, oh, sorry, hey, Safe, let me just, uh, because I know you often talk about, you know, calling paper money fiat, and you talk about, you know, when we left the gold standard because gold had inherent value, it required effort, time, and investment to actually mine the gold, to, to acquire the gold. And yeah. now with Bitcoin, what is the inherent value in Bitcoin? Because there's some work that's involved in, 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 in mining those, you know, those crypto dollars or crypto you know, points. And so yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? And then one of the criticisms that's being leveled currently about Bitcoin is the work that is required to, to actually you know, produce more Bitcoin is it's, it's, it's extremely electricity intensive. And so there's been some criticism that it's, just, it's using too much electricity. Can you can you talk about those issues? Sure. So. I mean, in terms of the inherent value, I think the, the the fundamental basic premise from which economics begins is the idea that all value is subjective. So nothing has inherent value. Anything that has value has value because people decide that it has value. So, you know, oil, 
used to be something that you would pay people to take out of your land so that you could use the land. Now it's something that people will pay you for to take out of the land. So the oil has stayed the same. It doesn't have any inherent value, but just our valuation of it has, is what has changed. So the, the difference is that with gold, the value is determined on the market, that people choose to value it freely and people choose to accept it freely. And that's, that's really what matters for it. And the reason for that is, that because, is, is because it's very hard to produce. And that's really the main argument of the first six, seven chapters of my book, which don't even get into Bitcoin at all. Hard money is always what's going to win. People will rather put their wealth and store it in things that are hard to produce. Because if it's hard to produce, it's hard for others to make more of it. And so it's hard for others to take the value out of it. And so, you know, this isn't, this is why, you know, it's beyond right and wrong. It's just reality. People will choose the hardest thing to produce as money. And governments use um, the threat of violence. Governments will threaten you to throw you in jail so that you could use their money, which would not be used on a free market without government forcing you to use it and pay taxes with it because it's easy to produce. People given the choice in a free market, they'd rather choose things that are hard to produce. So Bitcoin recreates that. Bitcoin recreates that in that it's very expensive to make Bitcoin. You know, the cost of making a Bitcoin right now is roughly in the range of buying a Bitcoin. And that's what you want in your monetary asset. Because if there was a way for somebody, somewhere, anywhere, to make Bitcoins at say 10% of the price of a Bitcoin, then nobody would want to use Bitcoin as money, okay? So in terms of the electricity, uh, the, the the point that I make, you know, is, is it's it's this idea that you know electricity consumption is bad. I think is a very very wrong misconception that the environmentalist movement has has, has foisted upon people. Um, you know, you live in a home that costs a lot of energy and consumes a lot of energy every day. You don't live in a tent, so why don't you do that? A tent would consume much less energy. Why don't you just move into a tent? Your car consumes much more energy than a horse, and yet you still drive a car. So obviously, you know. Consuming energy is not a bad thing. It's obviously a costly thing. You have to pay for it. But, you know, your goal in life is to live a better life. And that is going to be improved by having more energy consumed. So the process of human civilization and the growth of our civilization is in us being able to command more energy. You in, And you look all over the world today, you know, the quality of life, the happiness, the income, the material well-being of individuals is highly correlated with the amount of energy that they consume. So... Places that are poor are places that don't have access to a lot of energy. And if they're going to improve their lives, they're going to need a lot more energy. And, you know, we want the world to be a better place. It's going to mean a lot more energy consumption. And that's not a bad thing. So Bitcoin is just a new technology that, um, you know, in, in the same way that the, that the car does what the horse does, but consumes more energy and saves us from having to deal with the horse and horse shit on the streets everywhere. That's what Bitcoin effectively does. It allows us to replace central banks and replace government monopolies over money, which allow governments to do all sorts of horrific things. And that's the real cost of it. You know, it's not just that, okay, you know, it's cheaper to hire a central banker in terms of, a central banker consumes less energy than Bitcoin, but a central banker also allows the government to take away your wealth, inflate your supply, finance unnecessary wars, finance all sorts of um, destructive government monopolies and things. And so if you really want to think about it, you know, by replacing human dis human discretion over money with electric consumption, we are able to get a money that is neutral and that is much better for us because it's it allows us to store value well and it accumulates value over time and it's 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 much uh, 
It's it, it, it kills all of the thing, bad things that government do, including telling you what to eat, including the, the managing your money, your food supply, and having something like the FDA tell you what your diet should be. Yeah, had these had these banks that were holding people's gold um, been able to keep themselves from fractional reserve, uh, like using fractional reserves and inflating the money supply, and uh, so they once again could enrich themselves at the expense of others. If they could have kept themselves from doing that, we would have no reason for Bitcoin exactly. uh, because they would just be doing their job. The fact is, though, is throughout history, you can cover centuries and centuries of um, banking history. And every single time, uh, you know, bankers can't help themselves but uh, use fractional reserves. Um, it always devalues the currency over time. Um, and so because of that, we have to use this. Um, so whenever someone wants to complain about um, the electricity usage of Bitcoin, first of all, it's incentivizing, you know, new ways of finding electricity. And I, I actually have long-term optimism that uh, Bitcoin mining will uh, incentivize the development of, you know, more like nuclear technology or other, other clean, so-called clean energy kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but besides that, if they would stop, if they would stop cheating the system, we wouldn't need this. So the people who, who are, sending their vitriol towards Bitcoin for uh, uh, burning electricity, they need to redirect that vitriol to the people who cause us to have to do this in the first place. Yeah. So just just because a lot of people are, are maybe not familiar with some of this stuff, and, and, and I'll include myself, when you talk about fractional reserve, you're talking about the fact that a bank will say they have you know $20 million in a bank and they only have $2 million actually on hand. And when, with Safe's point about Bitcoin, the, the cost of making a Bitcoin is what it is, is what it's worth, rather than say, if I have a $100 bill in my hand, it only may, it may have cost the government three cents to produce that, but now they're saying it's worth worth $100. So that's yeah. the difference when we went away from you know something that was Although, actually back, backed by yeah. gold. Yeah, although in today's world, since you know, since the 70s, when we've had no link between gold and the dollar, it doesn't even cost anything. It's just you know, it, it costs as much as it costs to to pay someone to you know type something into an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, that's only, how you create new money. Only about 10% of the actual dollar supply is physical dollars, and about 90% is all digital. So we're already all on digital money anyway. It's just Bitcoin just makes it expensive digital money. That's the that that's the astonishing achievement that Bitcoin managed to do. And that and that inflation is, I guess, directly tied to that 10% like regulation. Essentially, is what you're saying, where the central banks are required to keep 10% of what they claim to have on on hand. Um, so, just to kind of, I'm I just want to rewind a second here and uh, <laughs> um, see if you like. You can definitely tell me if I'm way off base here, but uh, kind of like I listened to a podcast a while back about about Bitcoin and um. The, the kind of short answer was essentially what it's doing is it's kind of removing that middleman, which is the central bank, um, and kind of creating a direct relationship between the supply and the demand, which is going to essentially create like a much more accurate price per product uh, or you know a more accurate um, evaluation of that product uh, from the demand itself. Uh, is that kind of essentially what you're trying to say with it? And then if so... What kind of pushback are you getting from like these uh, very powerful central bank figures when they're kind of essentially getting removed from that equation or kind of uh, being pushed out, or are they trying to reinvent themselves to fit in that equation at all? Or I, I guess you're correct in that sense that you know when you when the money is a free market money, it allows everybody to make 
proper calculations about the value and the opportunity cost of things. Mm -hmm. When the money is easy to produce, it's funny money, nothing has a real opportunity cost. And so you get effectively all of the problems of the modern economy that people think are just a normal part of an economy, inflation, recessions, business cycles, unemployment, these are not a normal part of how an economy functions. In fact, the point of money is to coordinate economic activity to stop these things from happening. And so when you mess with the money, that's when those things happen. And the metaphor that I like to use is messing with the money supply is a little bit like uh, if, you know, the government was every day announcing what is the inch and what is the meter and what is the centimeter. So, if you know, if imagine if every day they redefine the inch, you know, good luck trying to build your home when every day the, ch- the size of the inch changes. Obviously, you're going to build homes that will be falling apart. There will be many problems with it. So that's that. That's the one way of uh, looking at it. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the punditry class they hate it. Like er- everyone, yeah. everyone in the the media, in government, in um, the banking industry, they all they all have looked down upon Bitcoin and been uh, <laughs> uh, on a whole spectrum of angry and and rude about um, yeah about it. Uh, Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winner called Bitcoiners cultists um, years after he had uh, written an article called Bitcoin is evil. Um, He then quoted me on Twitter um, and said that he was understating things uh, because I said uh, Bitcoin is a revolt against uh, fiat money and an all meat diet is a revolt against fiat food. Um, This did not please the intelligentsia class. But uh, yeah, these people cannot stand it. Um, That being said, you know, I think I think uh, many people in governments will uh, come to appreciate Bitcoin for a, a variety of reasons, uh, whether to uh, save ship because, you know, the, the central banks, they, they create a f- very fragile situation for um, global economics. And uh, that can be dangerous uh, if you're trying to, you know, conserve power um, and such. Yeah. So they might they might capitulate to Bitcoin. Um, in fact, I I can think of many reasons why they might actually do so. Um, but the bankers themselves, they're they're not pleased. They try to promote memes like, like uh, blockchain, not Bitcoin. The the underlying the, the ledger that Bitcoin use, uses is something called blockchain. Uh, but that that data structure is only useful for the purposes of digital cash. However, they try to take that buzzword and apply it to how they're trying to make these really inefficient, uninteresting um, so-called improvements to their own systems. Um, while totally missing the point of what Bitcoin actually provides, which um, is to it, get rid of them. Yeah, <laughs> and to be clear, like I, I actually, you know, based on the this idea of the Bitcoin standard, Bitcoin doesn't get rid of the banks. It it merely gets rid of the fractional reserve banks. So sure. people who there can still be, uh, for instance, like loans in a Bitcoin world. There can still be custodians in the Bitcoin world. There can be a whole slew of financial institutions, um, but they're not going to be able to just make up units in the, the monetary supply. Um, so anyway, yeah, like we've seen everything. There's uh, very few of them seem to actually understand the technicals. Um, I think Paul Krugman, he has a very honest response to Bitcoin because it is an, is a total affront to his entire worldview. Um, it'd be like going to the you know American Diabetes Association and tell them to eat only meat. Um, it's people- exactly the same reaction. I mean, you see it on Twitter, you know, this kind of uh, reaction that you get from the... Uh, government-sponsored uh, food groups and the vegan uh, propagandists and, uh, you know, they, you know, the, the same idiotic sarcasm that people today think is just a substitute for any... Uh, 
others are while making it sound stupid, then suddenly you're smart and you win the argument. This is an entire generation of people who have grown up watching stupid comedy TV and thinking this is just what an argument is. And it's the same thing you get from economists and you get it from dietitians. And it's the same exact reaction because, you know, you have an official story and then you have people rebelling against it and doing well because they're rebelling mm -hmm. against it and it offends them. And, and my favorite example of this is an economist called Nouriel Roubini. <laughs> you might want to check him out. And, and he's, he's, I mean, he's going, he's going insane at this point because of Bitcoin. He's completely lost it. This is somebody who was, you know, celebrating. Somebody found a tweet from 2011 or 12 where he was celebrating 12, 2012, where he was celebrating Bitcoin dropping to $60 and saying, see, Bitcoin has died because it has dropped to $60. And he's been watching Bitcoin go from $60 to $20,000. And now when it drops down to 6,000, so 100 times where he said it was dead, he's still tweeting, celebrating, see? see, I told you Bitcoin is dead. I mean, if you, and, and I made the math for it once, if every time he tweeted about Bitcoin, you'd put in $100 into Bitcoin, you would have made an enormous amount of returns over the uh, over what he's done. He but, has man boobs, by the and way. And he has man boobs, yes. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really quite revealing because you look at his Twitter followers, uh, his following, the people he follows, he follows, uh, what's his name, um, one of those vegan guys you're always fighting with on Twitter. The, 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 McDougal uh, or? Uh, the, the, the don't die, how to not oh, die oh, guy. Michael Greger. Greger, yeah. oh yeah. Yes, yeah. he follows Michael Greger and he follows the, that stuff, so... And you can see it, you know, he's, uh, Rubini is like 59 right now, um, or in his 50s, and he's already beginning to look like an, you know, menopausal old lady, <laughs> and you can obviously see why, you know, it's, it's the same kind of mentality that drives him towards shitty government I mean, economics and shitty government dietary advice. And, you know, the, 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 the reality is for me, I, I don't argue with those people anymore. I think time is the only thing that settles argument, and I will not waste my time arguing. Let him keep eating his soy and keeping his government-sponsored job, and 20 years from now, we'll see who's going to do yeah. better. Besides the organ meat uh, and raw meat debates, the other big debate is which group of people is worse, economists or nutritionists. <laughs> it's a very fun one. I, I, I float between, but I actually I tend to think that economists are worse uh, because they they mess with this fundamental layer of uh, human coordination, which yeah. uh, has that. But at the same time, uh, the other way around, uh, messing with food uh, is going to affect your ability to have any sound thinking about economics in the first place. Yeah, another way of thinking of it. I mean, to make the counter argument, uh, Michael, to argue <laughs> against you know, if we didn't have nutritionists. Um, basically giving people all of this brain damage from malnutrition, I don't think these economists' ideas would be popular in the first place. So it's really hard to tell which came first, you know, the nutritionist chicken or the economist's mm -hmm. egg. But the good news is, you know, with Bitcoin carnivory, we're going to be getting rid of the chicken and the egg, so we'll be fine anyway. So one quick follow-up question, too, with it, like, if, if we would, uh, if, like, the population, I guess, would, would just jump on Bitcoin and we would go wholesale on that, um, would that essentially the way I'm kind of looking at this, it, like it's a modern day gold standard in that, you know, we're kind of revaluing things to an appropriate level. What would that do to just like the general person's like wealth savings? Would they have to take an initial hit before kind of having everything restabilizes where prices start to begin to match people's, uh, I guess, newly defined uh, revenue stream or newly defined savings or like, uh, like financial income, I guess. So, I mean, you know, most people, their wealth is not held in the form of uh, U.S. dollars. You know, if you ask any person, very few people actually hold significant amounts of phys uh, physical U.S. dollars or even dollars in bank accounts. 
So, you know, if, if, we, if we were to have a situation where everybody moves to Bitcoin tomorrow, yeah, you would expect the value of the dollar to collapse. But, you know, your house is still going to be your house. Your company is still going to be a company. It's going to have this market price. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's just going to be expressed in Bitcoin instead of being expressed in dollars. So, you know, I I tend to think, you know, the the, the scenarios about it, about about the Bitcoin takeover being just an apocalyptic hellhole. I think they're they're completely off the mark. The way that I see it is that it's just one person at a time. We're going to be moving towards this superior form of money. And any person who moves there immediately benefits so the last people to move will benefit the least possibly but they will still benefit because we're going to be moving towards an economy where things are calculated with hard money you have a hard form of money and so value is created only um, you know money is only created when value is created and I think this is really the key point in an economy in which money is easy a lot of people dedicate their time towards making more money and so pretty much anybody connected to government is working a job that is not really valuable in terms of offering valuable things to people on the market. It's only valuable because it allows you access to the government printers, which you know, you're not making value. You're just taking away some of the value that others are making. Bitcoin makes that impossible. Nobody has a Bitcoin printer. Nobody can make print Bitcoin um, at will. Bitcoin supply is only increased according to a fixed schedule. And so I think the effect that it's going to have on society is going to be astonishing to people at just how much more productive, prosperous, and peaceful society will be when everybody just has to work and serve others in order to make money rather than do all the stupid things that we do today. Yeah, an important uh, economic topic that Safe covers a lot in his book is uh, the concept of time preference, which yeah. is you know how, how much are you willing to delay gratitude so you can get more stuff, mm-hmm. um, like uh, achieve more of your, your ends um, by waiting. And when you have a hard money, uh, you're, and you're incentivized to save more, your your time preference goes down. So you also, um, you're able to build, you know, more more capital stock and just, you know, be, be wealthier in general. And the average person, you know, how much, how much time does the average person, you know, maybe spend having to worry about financial planning with like 401ks and like all this other stuff just to keep afloat? Because if they, if they took their paychecks and got it in cash and put it on their mattress, uh, their money would be devalued and they, they wouldn't even be able to get anything. Meanwhile, if you have a hard money, if they put just you know some money in, away in savings into um, Bitcoin and they hold it, presumably given, given our beliefs about the, the nature of, of money are correct um, in, in terms of you know, Bitcoin winning, um, in the future that Bitcoin would be worth more. And so it's actually useful to just have it under the mattress. Um, and once you do that, you're, you're beginning to think more long term uh, as opposed to short term where you're just trying to, to get through yeah. things, spend as much as possible, because if you don't spend it, you're going to be worse off tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, save more, because if you save more, you're going to be better off tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you, if you look at the 19th century, you know, savings rates across the Western world were more like 20, 30, even up to almost 40 percent. People saved about 30 percent of their income. Today, people save about 3 percent of their income. If and, any. If any, yeah. And, 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 the, and the reason for that is that, you know, there's no point in saving the money. The money is going to be losing value. So you might as well spend it. And so, you know, the, the, the process of civilization is people continuing to save, accumulate capital and passing it on to the next generation. And you have civilization when each generation is able to pass on to the next generation more than in what it received from the previous one. Now you see fiat money, the fact that it's always devaluing, means that people can't save much. And so people just spend their life in debt 
And by the time they die, they have very little to pass on to their next generation. So I think, you know, it would it, it would exact it would basically reboot the entire operating structure economically. And I, I, I think, you know, um, the world in the 19th century was a much better place in uh, in terms of the kind of economic system that we had, which incentivized people to save, incentivized people to think of the long term. It led to a lot of economic um, growth and innovation. And, you know, if you think about the art, the way that people work, even, you know, it's reflected in the art. People had a low time preference in that they, they worked for years on producing an, economic, an artistic masterpiece. Today, nobody has the time or ability to, you know, waste a few years on trying to learn a skill uh, in order to become artistic. And I think that's inseparable from how the money shapes society's uh, yeah. time preference. But even before you get to that macro scale, um, we can see, so in the, the Bitcoin community itself, what you tend to notice, everyone has a sort of story where they get into Bitcoin and they start putting some money into Bitcoin and they start thinking in terms of like, okay, if Bitcoin takes over, this little amount of money that I spent now is going to be worth a lot in the future. And so every time they go to the store to buy something, they have to think it's like, yeah, I'm only spending a dollar on, you know, this, you know, soda or something, but that dollar could be worth, you know, uh, a thousand times that or something mm. um, in the future. And therefore, they're going to think twice about purchasing that. So you actually see a real, uh, real results in the real world with people's behaviors when they start working with what they know is a hard money, they start reevaluating what they truly value and what they truly want in life. And they stop, you know, buying so much consumer items. They start thinking about what are the things I can build? What are the things I can, like, yeah. what can I save towards? What can I, what can I do with my life? Um, and not just sit around and, um, yeah, you know, consume crappy food and crappy as potato you know you get your paycheck and it's just about a contest of being able to figure out how to just get rid of it and replace it with anything you know even things that you don't need because it's not going to be worth anything or it's going to be worth less and less over time mm -hmm. now if it was going to be worth a little bit more even you know it doesn't have to go up much but even if it goes up by say three percent per year you're going to be far more careful about spending and you're not going to be spending things on things just because you want to spend you're going to be spending only because you need to so now just imagine how different the world would look if people only spent money on things that they needed and then used the rest of the money to save it, to invest it in the future, to build things that last for the future, you know? I think one obvious result of this is that people would just, you know, stop eating so much goddamn garbage and Twinkies and Coke and all of that stuff that uh, people tend to eat, which you don't need, you know, just... Well, and your, your body is capital. Yeah. Um, and so you, because you have a longer term vision of the future, you're going to want to take care of your capital a lot more instead of yeah. knowing that there's, there's going to be free health services, thanks to like, you know, subsidized insurance programs and whatever socialized health care, whatever other socialized health care, you're going to be taking more personal responsibility and actively wanting yeah. uh, to take care of your body. Uh, among everything else. This, this is another reason for the overlap between the Bitcoiners and the carnivores. You know, it becomes much easier to explain to somebody something about, you know, look, food is not just something about entertaining yourself today. Okay, stop thinking about, you know, this pack of Pringles makes me happy today while I'm watching a movie. You know, just think about eating today is going to determine your health tomorrow, one year from now, five years from now, ten years from now. And once you think of it that way, you know, 
it's a no-brainer to start eating proper yeah. meat rather than wasting your time and money on junk. Is it, yeah, is it really worth it to eat that donut for that that little bit of pleasure now when you know what it can what can it affect? Uh, you know, ten years down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey guys, let me. Uh, sorry, and I, I lost internet connection, so I missed a little bit of this stuff. And so, but you know, what? Why Bitcoin? You know, because there's a lot of competitors out there now. You know, Ethereum, Zcash, all these other quote unquote altcoins. And I know, Safe, you've been very vocal about discrediting those. Why Bitcoin and not some of these other cryptocurrencies? Well, the 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 technical term we use is shitcoin. <laughs> the, <technical. laughs> the reason is is that in a a free market for money competition, which um, prior to Bitcoin, we did not live in a free market for money competition because we have um, legal tender laws and uh, monopolies on money production. But Bitcoin broke through that, and now obviously, like anyone can just create their own um, currency out of thin air because we have this technology to do so. That being said, and when once you have that free market of currency where you can't just force someone to use a specific money, the universe tends towards one money. And the reason is you can think of, uh, you know, think of think of money like a language for economic trade. If everyone's speaking a different language, it becomes much harder for people people to communicate with one another. But if everyone is talking in the same language, um, that becomes easier to share ideas with more people. So when everyone is sharing the same economic language, there's more opportunities for everyone for different types of trade they can engage in. And suddenly different people who weren't able to trade before then can. And so there's an extreme, it, it, it's an exponential um, growth. When, when a money, uh, there's something called Metcalfe's law, which is a good you know, kind of heuristic, which is saying that the value of a network is roughly N squared the number of nodes in it, because that's the number of um, potential um, communication lines uh, between each node. Um, that, that it's only a, a heuristic, but it's a good way of thinking of it. So every time someone goes to a currency versus another one, you can think of it as that that new currency doubled in value, and the one they just left uh, decreased by half. And every single marginal movement towards one of them has that exponential growth, and you're going to have a power law distribution. So, you know, there's, I, I imagine there's always going to be, you know, competitors out there to Bitcoin, but it doesn't change the fact that in monetary competition, uh, one will tend to rule them all. In yeah. history, we see this with gold. You know, we've had, there's a gazillion metals and other goods, you know, from from beads to, to you know, cows to salt to whatever, that you can use as money, but by the 18th century, uh, 19th century, when we're talking about sort of the what we would almost call like the the height of civilization, gold had won out. The yeah. world was operating on a on a gold standard and able to um, do all economic trade on that. Much makes it much easier for global trade um, in a specially connected world like ours today. The more global the money, uh, you know, the better it is for this trade. Um, so it's. It, it's just a it's a winner take all thing. So if a if a currency wants to be able to compete with Bitcoin, first of all, they're going to have to compete on the monetary policy, which is that hardness of the money, which Bitcoin already has effectively the perfect monetary policy. So I don't see how you would compete on that. And once you get from there, you would have to somehow have you you would have to have features that somehow make it a 10x, 100x, 1000x, whatever it takes to actually get people to move. Um, to that instead of just Bitcoin. Yeah. Meanwhile, Bitcoin has had the longest one. It's been the most battle tested. Um, it just continues to do 
the best things. It has the most mind share. It has the best developers who, you know, treat this like the, you know, civilizational project it is. It's not it's not a JavaScript, you know, weekend hacking project. They treat Bitcoin like this is, you know, rocket science, that this is, you know, NASA trying to get to the moon. Um, yeah. And I'll also say, I mean, the, the, there's that aspect of just the, the the universe will tend towards one money for the simple reason that, you know, if given the choice between 100 monies, you know, you arrive at the world with, and there are 100 monies, the majority of people will go with the one that's bigger. And that's just the process that's going to lead to it. So, you know, the reason gold ended up being money at the end of the 19th century is not because any government chose it or there was a democratic vote about it. It was economic reality and it forced itself on everybody. And countries that were late to recognize that, that continued to try to use silver as money, paid a very, very heavy price, places like India and China, because they stuck with silver after everybody else had dumped silver and the value of silver collapsed. And that is a big problem for them. But I think there's an even, uh, you know, specifically when it comes to uh, the, the altcoins that try and pretend to compete with Bitcoin, there's a very simple fundamental reason why I think they can't even be considered competition for Bitcoin, which is that Bitcoin was, you know, invented by somebody who, you know, he made the code and he disappeared. And every single Bitcoin was produced through the process of what is called proof of work. So you have to spend electricity to make Bitcoin. And the cost of making a Bitcoin has always been roughly around the market value of a Bitcoin. That's just how the process works. So, you know, if, if the value of a Bitcoin today is $6,000, it costs around $6,000 to make it. If it jumps to $60,000 next month, it'll cost around $60,000 to make a Bitcoin. So we've always had Bitcoin as hard money. In order to make Bitcoin, you always have to make it as hard money. The problem that all the shitcoins have is that they are not hard money. They were made by a couple of nerds for uh, on a weekend. You know, they sat down together, they produced something, and they control it. That's the really key thing. There's somebody in charge of every single currency out there. And I mean, it's trivial to find out who that person is. If you've heard about any one of those currencies, and there's thousands of them at this point, but if you've heard of one, it is only because somebody is promoting it, you know? And that was not the case with Bitcoin because Bitcoin was the first. Bitcoin was the one that invented this thing. Bitcoin was invented by somebody who made this and he disappeared because he wanted to succeed. So now anybody who wants it to succeed or anybody who's just interested in the technology, you know, we've already invented the wheel. So all the good engineers are working on applications of the wheel. If you're a good engineer and you see that the wheel was invented, you're not going to go and try and say, well, hang on a second, let's try and make a square wheel and then I'll be the guy who invented the better, bigger, best wheel. No, you go and you take the wheel and you build on it. And so you look at all these altcoins. Any re the only reason any of them exist is because a bunch of people decided that they wanted to do this thing so that they could try and get rich off of it. So there's a foundation behind it. There's a marketing team behind it. There's a PR team behind it. And you could, you know, if you've heard of one, I it, it would take me three minutes to look up the list of names of people that are behind it. So the point is, we say, we you know the reason I wrote this book about Bitcoin, the reason I think Bitcoin is interesting and it offers that is not because there's anybody behind it that I trust. It's because there's nobody behind it and because we know and after we've we saw it, yeah, there's nobody we need to trust. And we saw this in 2017. Um, you know, we can you can see a detailed discussion of the events I referred to. We saw how some of the most influential people in Bitcoin, the most high profile people in Bitcoin and most of the companies that deal with Bitcoin that have the majority of customers dealing with Bitcoin, they tried to, ch to change one tiny little metric with Bitcoin and they failed. And that's what guarantees you that the supply of Bitcoin and the quantity of Bitcoin can't be changed.
That's why Bitcoin is hard money. In other words, Bitcoin is hard money because if you're going to make more Bitcoin, you have no alternative but to spend roughly the same amount of money that comes out of that a Bitcoin costs. With every single other altcoin, it's not hard money because the people behind it can tomorrow decide to double the supply, triple the supply. Mm -hmm. And we saw it with second the biggest supposedly what is viewed as the biggest competitor to bitcoin it was trivial for the people behind it as an ethereum foundation it was trivial for them to basically roll back the chain reverse transactions change everything so effectively it's a centralized database that people control and you know there's nothing wrong with centralization i'm not one of those people who thinks decentralization is just you know like motherhood and apple pie it's just well apple pie is bad <laughs> but like motherhood and ribeye i should say unequivocally good it's not that we value decentralization for its own sake it's that we value decentralization because we don't want anybody to mess with the money supply right. no altcoin can come close to claiming that we are hard money that this is our supply and this is how we do it Ethereum doesn't even know what their supply is going to be. They need to sit together and figure out how much more Ethereum they're going to be creating over the next year. So the, the, there's no comparison. All the other coins, there's a person behind them, there's a foundation behind them. And those people, it's trivial for them to change the code, to change what the thing does. That's why I really don't think there's any competition. You know, I think Bitcoin will fail or succeed. Bitcoin's competition is the dollar, the euro, it's gold, it's the IMF SDRs. It's national currencies, but these other things, these shit coins, essentially are completely pointless. They're just stupid games with stupid prizes. Altcoins alt are the keto gurus trying to sell you uh, sugar-laden snack bars, <laughs> and Bitcoin is the carnivore yeah. doc telling you to eat ribeyes. Eat a ribeye and deadlift and and try it for yourself. Yeah, hey, try I it for mean, yourself and, and stop stop overcomplicating things. I, I I certainly you know like I said I, I'm in this nutrition space and there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of a lot of a lot of noise out there and I and I certainly appreciate you know the because I don't understand much about economics and all this stuff and so I'm looking at this stuff going man it's you know it's making your head spin and so you can see where the confusion comes back. You know, when, when I use that analogy with nutrition, there's so many people out there have been told the different message, and you guys are you know flying in the face of I guess what they'd be Keynesian economics, and you you got you guys are kind of changing the way things are being thought about. One of the things I've seen recently, you know, I've seen that like Venezuela, you know, the country's going through this tremendous political turmoil. A lot of those people are, are kind of maybe switching to Bitcoin to kind of kind of to kind of protect themselves. I see that China has been threatening to 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 make it illegal or something. Can you guys comment about some of that stuff on the international scene? Well, I mean, every every jurisdiction is going to approach this in a different way. Um, although it does, there, there's anyone who tries to to fight Bitcoin, I'm going to imagine is going to have a hard time in the future, and those who embrace it are going to have a good time in the future. Uh, Venezuela specifically, they had a government who you know took these you know money money printing powers to the extreme, um, to where they completely destroyed their nation's economy by giving them no good way to coordinate because the money was completely worthless um china they're they're playing i i don't i don't keep up with chinese politics but they have some kind of you know internal and you know uh geopolitical aspirations that make them want to do a specific thing um but yeah i mean in, in venezuela people um there are a number of people who are using bitcoin because you know even if they can't necessarily uh take the bitcoins and go immediately buy um go buy food or something like that if they can hold on to it uh that's going to stay with them for as long as they're holding on to it as opposed to 
um, not having anything at all. Um, there's uh, great stories from, there's a Bitcoiner named uh, Wences Casares uh, who grew up in uh, Argentina and the stories of uh, living under a regime that hyperinflated the money away, you don't know if you're going to eat, you know, um, and you also like you, you get, it's like, it's like what we were saying about the, the fiat money and not wanting to save. It's the same thing, but to the extreme, like by the end of the day, the money won't be worth anything. Like if you, if you could buy, you know, eggs in the morning, there's not even a guarantee that in the evening you'll be able to buy eggs. Um, and so for these people, you know, whatever the cost is for them to get their hands on some bitcoins, um, if it can help them in some way save some money, even if there's other trade-offs with regard to what exactly they can trade for, that is a major boon for them. Um, and yeah. I, I wish all of those people the the best of luck because they are dealing with, um, you know, uh, the the horrors of socialism that just haven't ended. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you hear these uh, government employees like Paul Krugman and Nouriel Rubini going on about how Bitcoin is evil. They somehow don't really mention how, how people in Venezuela are able to survive because of Bitcoin, which obviously, you know, since they're socialists and closet socialists, they don't see much wrong with what is happening in uh, Venezuela. But a lot of people in Venezuela can survive today because they have family and friends in the U.S. or uh, in other countries that will send them tiny amounts of Bitcoin, which they can then use to buy uh, food supplies from online providers and have them shipped to Venezuela. And that's how they survive. Mm -hmm. It's only because they are able to send their Bitcoins. They also abroad. they also mine because there's there was a lot. I, I don't know if that's actually been cracked down on yet, but for a while there were definitely people mining because of uh, Venezuela's subsidized electricity. They were basically hacking the system and making use of that. So they were getting free Bitcoins if they could get their hands on uh, hardware. And they might not be getting as much as the guy who has, you know, a massive warehouse full of uh, ASIC chips. But if they're, like I said, even if they're just getting something, that money is going to be worth something. And I should note that, you know, despite the price of Bitcoin having gone up to 17000 um, and now down to 6000 or whatever, um, that is nothing compared to the devaluation of their currency on a daily basis. Yeah. And therefore, it doesn't even matter. Like, that's still a better money. Um, yeah. And the reality is, you know, when it comes to China, there's a lot of people who keep thinking and keep trying to say that China has banned Bitcoin. It's not really true. There's, they're trying to place restrictions on exchanges that sell and buy Bitcoin. They're placing restrictions on miners. It's a complicated political uh, deal. It's not very easy for us uh, non-Chinese people to understand because we don't understand how Chinese society and government work. But, you know, Bitcoin is still in use in China. There's nothing illegal about holding it. And I think, um, you know, no country has made Bitcoin purely illegal and no country has really persecuted people for Bitcoin yet. We may see that, but I think the, the, the in the long run, it's just the governments are going to realize that they stand to benefit much more from trying to hold Bitcoin yeah. than to try to ban it. I Even on an easy. individual level, um, if, if you're a government employee and you're tasked with deciding if you need to you know, ban Bitcoin or not, and then you do your thorough research and find out that if this thing does catch on, then uh, it's going to go up in price, you might come back and you know, be like, eh, I don't know. I think let's let's take longer to figure this out, guys. And meanwhile, you're just buying up bitcoins for yourself. Yeah, we've um, seen this happen with many uh, supposed government regulators who you know started off talking smack about bitcoin and then ended up now just basically advising now you get the, companies on bitcoin. Yeah, and, and now you get bitcoin. the the head of the CFTC being at a hearing and say, talking about, oh well, my 
my uh, niece buys Bitcoin, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to take away these uh, children's future. They're they're working on these cool technological innovations. We need to. Yeah, I mean, sort of uh, also on on one hand, the idea of banning it is just completely impractical in any meaningful sense because anybody who has a computer that can connect to the internet is able to use Bitcoin, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. So you know, the notion that government is going to shut down the internet. Is I mean it's it's the sort of thing that if you watch a lot of science fiction movies and um, you know you think that that's how reality works then yeah I mean, you might think of it but the reality is you know if you try to bring down the internet around the world I mean the the damage that you would do to critical infrastructure everywhere you'd have dams collapsing and you'd have hospitals blowing up and you'd have factories yeah. uh, turning Big, into Bitcoin trouble. will be the least of your problems yeah, at that and, point. <laughs> and you know Bitcoin needs the least data. It's, it, it, it's just a tiny little amount of data that needs to be transmitted between a few thousand computers all over the world. So you could end up you know destroying the last 200 years of civilization and Bitcoin will still continue to operate. So I, I, the notion that it's going to be closed down or shut down, I think, is, is is extremely off the mark. What I think in my book, you know, I discuss, well, can Bitcoin be killed? I have a whole chapter, a whole section of a chapter discussing this. And in my opinion, the most effective way to kill Bitcoin would be a return to the gold standard, which would remove the demand for Bitcoin. If people had the choice of gold and they had the ability to use banks that were honest in a free market and they could choose whichever bank they want the way they want it, that would seriously undermine demand for Bitcoin. But all these fantastic stories about, you know, they're going to throw people in jail for running software on their computer. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a dystopic thing that would be even outlandish for even the most outlandish of Hollywood movies. Yeah, I mean, and, and then, of course, they're beating their soy in the dystopian future as well. But, hey, guys, um, I unfortunately, I've got a, I've got an interview with the New York Post i got to do here in a few minutes. I'll have to cut out of here. But let me ask you just... Two things, Michael, meatheels.com. I know you and I got together on that. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then the most important question I have, guys, is when are we going to have this Bitcoin uh, meat supply place <laughs> we've been talking about yeah. for a while? Well, yes. we got so, to yeah. get the meat to the people and use Bitcoin to, to buy it. That's what I want to see. Well, so uh, meatheels.com, you know, on you bought the domain name. I set up the WordPress. And, yeah, we uh, we take submissions from people. Just We, we want to hear people's stories about health and fitness um, by eating meat and we have I, I don't know the exact number but we might be up to like 90 stories now of just people who have you know changed their lives in innumerable ways some people just you know lost a lot of weight and that was what they wanted in life there's people who um, were infertile um, from you know polycystic ovarian uh, syndrome and other stuff like that uh, who now have children um, there are people who overcame um, terrible, terrible autoimmune conditions that you know weren't thought to be curable. Uh, Crohn's disease, like you name it. There's just all kinds of crazy stuff to the point where you really have to wonder: Is meat actually the panacea? Um, so it's just a, it's it's incredible to hear people's stories, um, and it's a good way for people to really uh, make it real. You know, looking at PubMed articles, um, they're usually not even good science. And besides that, it doesn't really tell that story that resonates with people and kind of encourages them to want to actually try it themselves. But these stories um, have really uh, opened people's eyes and made people want to try these things and, and get out there and do actual science for themselves. Um, I also have a website, justmeet.co, where I try to organize a lot of uh, the great resources out there on the web uh, so people can learn about everything under the sun, whether it's the evolution or anthropology or 
you know, these testimonials or different carnivore communities like some of yours, like World Carnivore Tribe and others. Um, you know, there's there's lots of work to be done on that, but it's just it's such a, a web of slightly unintuitive information that you have to just kind of, you know, be uh, mining around. And uh, this is my way of just kind of throwing it all in one place so people can find stuff. As far as the conference, uh, oh, sorry, yeah, the, well, I guess there is the thing. We also need to have a, a yes. beef, Bitcoin, and barbell conference. Yeah, we just had we just had a meetup. Uh, we were invited to a conference in Dallas two days ago, and uh, uh, Michael and Pierre decided to have a dinner for the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. We ended up with like 80 people flying in, and it was 80 people who are completely on board with Bitcoin and carnivory. It was at a steakhouse, a glorious Texas in the steakhouse. It was delicious. <laughs> So I think we have a, we we we're underestimating we were underestimating just how many people are on board for yeah. this. We've got to we've got to have ourselves a conference where you know the next time it's all about Bitcoin and yeah. barbells and beef with grilling tutorials and uh, <laughs> death lifting tutorials by Sean and all of that where we can all you know exchange all of that knowledge and create a, a new class things in life. Yeah, a new class of people that are you know completely up to date <laughs> on the state of the art in deadlifting, bitcoining and uh, eating beef. Yeah. I think, and then, I think some yeah. people are calling that 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 cohort of people woke. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Hashtag woke. Hey guys, I gotta woke run unfortunately. Fat. Hey Zach, will you because uh, I gotta get with this reporter. Hey, will you Zach, will you just touch on how to find these guys, talk about Safe's book, how if people are interested in pursuing Bitcoin, can you guys talk about how to get into that stuff? Uh but and I'm gonna drop off, guys, because I gotta go. But I, I appreciate it, Zach. I'll talk to you later, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right, yeah, if you care. guys can maybe start. Yeah, like, what, what, what would someone do if they listen to this and decide I'm all in on Bitcoin? What's their, what's the easiest way for them to get involved? And then, obviously, uh, you know, share any ways that we can find you guys on social media, internet, yeah. and then book info as well would be great. Well, um, so if someone gets into Bitcoin, there's a couple of resources I'll recommend. First of all, the Bitcoin Standard, the Decentralized Alternative to Central Banking by Saifuddin Amus, uh, is an absolute must read um, because it doesn't just tell you, uh, you know, how this thing works. It tells you why it matters in the first place. Um, and I, I, I know plenty of people who have been listening to me rant about how great Bitcoin is for years, but it wasn't until I got them to read this book that it really opened their eyes. Um, so there's that one. If someone really wants to dive into the, the technical stuff, there's a book called Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. That'll tell you all about the how. It's a uh, it's put out by a O'Reilly publisher, which makes like coding books, but you don't have to be a programmer. It it, it walks your hand. If you're an intelligent layman, um, you can definitely uh, come to grasp it. It's going to take a long time to understand. This is a whole new world of you know, cryptography and that, but any any intelligent person who puts in the work can understand all of um, how this how, how, this whole thing, like how it works and why it matters. Um, I also recommend my own website, the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, nakamotoinstitute.org, where there's uh, tons of historical stuff, uh, you know, like the history of the, the crypto anarchists and cypherpunks that Bitcoin came out of, all of Satoshi's writings, um, a lot of economic analysis of Bitcoin, etc., um, th those are probably the the best things you can do to um, yeah. get your get yourself started. Yeah, and I and I'll just add one small thing, which is you know the the uh, I really do not recommend just getting into Bitcoin by buying a lot of Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, it took me about three four years of reading and trying to figure out what Bitcoin is before I put in one cent into it, and I don't regret it. Even though you know if I'd uh, bought earlier, it would have been much better. But because 
it's it, it's not a simple uh, thing to, to to understand what it means to own Bitcoin, how to own it, how to keep it secure. So I really urge you know if you're interested in it, you need to learn about it first Absolutely. before uh, getting into it. And yeah, the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute website is a great resource. Also, uh, the one of uh, a great Bitcoiner in the space, Jameson Lop, has a page on yeah. his on his website. It's it's lop.net slash bitcoin.html. So that's l o p p dot net slash bitcoin.html. Um, and it's just an incredible resource. It has everything that I just mentioned and more. Yeah. Um, Another website that I like is called startusingbitcoin.com. It's a useful uh, beginner's mm-hmm. intro for somebody who's not very technically uh, um, versed. It could give you a good uh, introduction uh, to those things. Yeah. Also, Twitter. If you're yes. interested in Bitcoin, get on Twitter and just find all the carnivores <laughs> and yeah, then so follow, you, the, follow the smell of the ribeyes and you'll see all the Bitcoiners. And uh, <laughs> you, you can start with us. Um, I'm on Twitter as Bitstein, B-I-T-S-T-E-I-N. And uh, Saifeddin, S-A-I-F-E-D-E-A-N. And from there, you'll find everyone because we, we promote and chill yes. meat and Bitcoin all day, every day. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys, for coming on the show. Hey, everyone. Sean and I are excited to announce that Human Performance Outliers podcast has partnered with Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery store that focuses on making high-quality grocery shopping easy. By going to thrivemarket.com backslash HPO and shopping, you not only support the HPO podcast, but will also receive 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices. On top of that, with every annual membership, Thrive will donate a free annual membership to low-income family, teacher, or veteran. If you don't make up your membership fee and savings, Thrive will refund your membership fee. The link can be found in the show notes. Thanks for your support. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd that's at s-b-a-k-e-r-m-d we're both also on instagram where you can find me at zach bitter that's at z-a-c-h-b-i-t-t-e-r and for sean it's at sean baker 1967 that's at s-h-a-w-n-b-a-k-e-r 1967 thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.